0: The airplane just would not hold altitude anymore. Anytime you tried to hold altitude, he'd feel that little stall buffet. So basically, we're just slowly coming down and down and down.
1: Episode 24 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast takes off now.
0: Hey, what's up, AV Nation? I'm Logan Flood. I am uh, currently flying as a captain on an Ember 175, and I fly for a major regional out of New York City's LaGuardia Airport
1: what is going on Aviation nation and welcome back to the pilot to pilot podcast my name is justin and i'm your host today i'm talking with logan flood logan flood has a crazy story one that i'm so excited for you guys to hear it talks about the adversity that he's had to handle the disabilities that he's had to overcome in order to reach his goal of becoming a pilot in this episode some of the things we talk about are how star wars helped him find his love for aviation how he thought the only way to become a pilot was by going to the Air Force, how his high school teacher led him to getting an internship at a local FBO, and Logan goes in a very specific detail about what happened with his accident, what the recovery process was like, how he dealt with the FAA, how he got his medical back, and how he is now flying for a regional airline. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know on our Instagram, at pilot Email us at pilot at gmo.com. If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash pilot Aviation Nation, thank you guys so much for all your support, even if it's just listening to this episode and sharing it with your friends. Share it with everyone. Let everyone know what we're doing here at Pilot the Pilot. I hope you guys truly enjoy this episode, and without further ado, here's Logan Flood. Hey, Logan. Thanks for coming on the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hey, thanks for uh, for bringing me on, man. No problem. I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, First question I ask everyone is, uh, why did you become a pilot? What was the original inspiration behind you wanting to be a pilot? Well, originally,
0: uh, growing up as a kid of the 80s, uh, I grew up as a big uh, science fiction geek. I was, uh, growing up five years old, I've, I was a Star Wars geek. I love Star Wars, love Star Trek. Um, being a, I wanted to be an astronaut. I really wanted to fly a spaceship. Didn't care about the science aspect of doing experiments in space. I just wanted to drive the ship. That's all I wanted to do. <laughs> I, w- I wanted to be Han Solo. My dad... Was an over the road truck driver, and I just kind of took. I wanted to take what he did up to the net, next level. I wanted to be. Uh, I wanted to be a Starship cargo pilot. Was rich as a kid. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be. Uh, I wanted to be Han Solo flying my own freighter. That's awesome. Making my. own... You know, my dad owned his own truck, so he was his own boss. He would basically sell his truck and trailer out to different food carriers and he would haul food cross-country all the time and it's like yeah, sauce so i have one spaceship i go fly around obviously that didn't really happen um so growing up in very very small town nebraska and as you've shown on instagram you you spent some time out in the quality of life of hastings oh, Nebraska. oh my gosh yes i have <laughs> uh so i grew up in a very small town so, so, so Hastings is not a small town. Hastings is actually a big city no compared way. to the town I, I grew up in. I grew up in a town uh, just about five miles to the southeast of Hastings called Trumbull, Nebraska. Okay. And that town has a population of 200 people. Oh, wow. That town, That town only exists – for the farmers co-op the railroad goes through there. there's a big grain elevator there basically every, everyone who lived there was basically farmers or worked in hastings they yeah. just wanted to they wanted to get out of the city life they trumbull. wanted to get out of the big city of hastings yes <laughs> so that's that's the whole purpose of trumbull nebraska anyways growing up there um being at the town is literally just surrounded by cornfield basically A quarter mile each direction, you're going to ride my bike into a cornfield. There was always crop dusters and I would always ride my bike out to the edge of the road and watch these crop dusters come in low and then pull up hard, bank out. I just love that. It's like, that's, that's, that's what I want to do. You know, that, that looks just like Luke Skywalker flying his X-Wing fighter low to the ground. You know, I wanted to be that guy. Um, so in small town Nebraska, this is in the 1980s. There's no such thing as internet and such a, such a small town. No one really knows any pilots or how to get into flying at all. Right. Uh, the rule, the rule of the law, at least that was in small town Nebraska. The only way you're going to become a pilot is if you go to the Air Force. That was kind of the the thought mentality back then, at least in my neck of the woods. The only way you can become a pilot is if you go to the Air Force. So, uh, unfortunately, I inherited my mother's eyes. Uh, I have very poor vision. Um, it's it requires extensive uh, correction yeah. just for me to see 2020. And right then and there, that discounted me for going in the Air Force. I thought, well, shoot, I'm not going to be a pilot now because I got really bad eyesight because I can't join the Air Force now. Or I, I can still join the Air Force just won't be able to be a pilot, and that's what I really wanted. So uh, I kind of gave up my dream of flying then at that point because I thought, well, gosh, I got to be a, uh, an Air Force pilot to even become a pilot. And my bad vision keeps me from doing that. So I've kind of, you know, kind of chose a second career path. I thought I was going to be uh, in law enforcement. I thought that's what I was going to do. But I still had that urge for flying as a kid. I, As I went into high school in the uh, early 90s, you know, 91, 92, um, I still had that bug really bad for flying. So what I would do is I got to be really good with computers, and I started flying around. Microsoft Flight Sim 5.0 was the big hit back then. <laughs> uh, paid $200 for a 4-meg upgrade for my old 46-packer bill so I could run it on high-res graphics on this Flight Sim. That's and I'd awesome. take off this I'd take off on, uh, on MIGS, you know, how Microsoft Flight Sim always started you off at MIGS Airfield. Yeah. And I t- and I take a Learjet, and I would take my dad, and I had no access to sectional charts or any type of aviation charts, but I got to practice with um, my dad's old uh, Rand McNally uh, road road charts, you okay. know, his highway maps. And what I would do is I would take a protractor and try to draw as best I could magnetic north off of uh, off of Chicago. And I would take that protractor and draw a line out to say LAX or San Francisco, and I would try to best as possible commute, uh, compute a magnetic heading off of that, and I would do it in flight sim. Then I would take off and fly that heading, and I would learn how to do VORs off of that. That's like, I need crazy. to back up a little. I got, I gotta back up a little bit. Is um. I have, I had no ties to aviation growing up. I was, I'm, I'm the first pilot of the family. Yeah. Apparently, apparently from what my grandfather, my dad has told me, my grandfather, he always wanted to learn how to fly. My grandfather was a dentist in a small town in Nebraska and he always wanted to learn how to fly, but his wife would never let him. She thought it was too dangerous, too expensive, but he always had the passion for it. He actually bought all the study aids. He built remote controlled airplanes. He died about a year before I was even born. So I never even got to meet him. Okay. Um, but my dad showed me all the stuff that he had. He showed me the books he had. So I, I dug into his textbook. And it was like a 1960s Jefferson uh, Private Pilot handbook. It was really cool in retro <laughs> That It was awesome. Uh, I still have it. It's a really cool textbook. Um, but it taught me, because VORs were like the cutting edge then. And so it talks about VORs and how to use them. So I, I, I transferred that knowledge into Flight Sim. So here I am flying this Learjet. And... um while well, shopping one day in Goodwill, I came across a AOPA airport uh, book that shows every airport and all the FBOs you can buy gas at. It's uh, It was like from 1991, 92. And on those airports, it also lists VOR frequencies if there's a VOR on the field. So Flight Sim has all those. So as I'm navigating across the country, just off my Dead Reckoning protractor compass heading i figure if i fly in this heading long enough i'm gonna probably be able to tune into some of these VURs. and sure enough i tune into denver's VUR and i run a protractor off my roadmap and off the radio off i'm getting on flight on i'm find out i'm actually relatively on course and i'm You know, I'm not simulating any winds or fuel burn. I just want to see testing my navigation skills. And eventually I do it. I set my, I'm able to tune into VR
1: of LAX and I fly right in LAX. That's crazy. That's so cool. So it's cool to see that the sim geeks out there and the people that just love flying and are young or not even young, just want to get into flying. You can, Flight Simulator can give you kind of an understanding of what it's like to be a pilot. Now it can't supplement actually flying an airplane, but it can help you. If you enjoy doing Flight Simulator, the chances are you're probably going to enjoy flying an actual airplane.
0: Oh absolutely. Absolutely. Especially
1: if you go um, to the to how far you went to where you took a protractor and a roadmap and figured out where you were and how far away you were from your destination.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> you know,
0: um so I did that in high school and all this time while I was during high school, I was working at the hardware department at the local Sears. And, you know, of course, back then everyone was allowed to write checks and of course if someone wrote a check you got to ask to see their id this one guy comes in he buys a bunch of tools and he's paying with the check and so i asked hey, had you see your id and he jokingly says how about my pilot's license you know <laughs> how do you know how do you know there's a pilot in the room don't worry he'll tell you yeah that's and the truth. that and that's what this guy did but this guy had glasses that were thicker than mine and i'm like hey you got your pilot's license but you got Glasses, and I thought you had someone I've always thought you had to have perfect vision. He's like, Oh no, you get a waiver, you know. He's in this, and he showed me his medical, he showed me his waiver. I'm like, Holy crap, you know, maybe I need to look into this a bit more. Uh, so it's around 1994, and I start thinking really seriously, like, I gotta find a way to start flying. So I start doing some research, and again, this is the 90s, there's no such thing as internet just yet. AOL was just starting to come up. But I lived out in rural Nebraska. Uh, my my best high speed internet was twenty four hundred baud rate, you know. I have my computer had a fifty six K modem in it, but I'm in rural Nebraska the phone lines haven't been messed with since the nineteen forties. Oh no. So so yeah, twenty four hundred baud rate's the best I'm getting for my dial up speed. So internet's out for me. Like at least get on the computers at the school. And yeah. even then though the 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 speed on the computer at the school aren't that good. So I talked to my business teacher, and uh, senior year, the business class is allowed to do an internship at wherever they want to go do an internship at. And I got a handed to my business teacher. She's the one that really put in, she really kind of was my weather vane. She guided me to where I needed to go to find out about flying. So while she's setting up these internships, you know, other guys in my class, you got you got the people that want to be an accountant. They're going to go do an internship at an accounting firm. And you got the paralegals doing law firms. and You got the medical people doing CNA stuff. I wanted to be a pilot, so she had no idea. But she went out and found a an internship for me. She drove out to the airport and asked all these different businesses, all these FBOs. One FBO laughed her out the door, like, oh, yeah, wow. whatever. But she went to this one FBO, the, the, the FBO next door, and they're like, yeah, we'll let them, we'll we'll show them around. So I did an internship my senior year of high school being a lineman pumping gas into airplanes. That's awesome. And I I loved it. I ate it up. It was so cool. Um eventually I kind of got mentored by the line manager who was also a an aspiring pilot. He was earning his CFI and he was getting ready to start doing flying taking giving flying lessons. And sure enough, as I was working out this internship, they saw my enthusiasm they offered me a full time job that summer, right out of high school. They're like, "Hey, we want to want you to stay working out here." No way! And that's I really loved cool. it. I I told Sears, "See ya." You know, <laughs> I got my I got my dream job now, and I loved it. I was I took a huge pay cut, because I was actually making good money for a high schooler out in Sears. But I was pumping gas into airplanes, and I was learning so much about airplanes. Uh, we'd have jets come through, and I would just I loved it, ate it up. Yeah, was this the um, Hastings Airport? And,
1: no, this was Grand Island. That okay. was Grand Island. That's where so you drove I, uh, a, got... was a good distance to get there, then didn't you? Yeah, um, I got to
0: yeah. Um, back up a little bit. There, I actually changed. We actually moved to a different, another small farm town in between Grand Island and Hastings. Okay. So we, I grew up in Trumbull, uh, but then eventually we moved to a town called Wood River, which is right gotcha. between Grand Island and Farneys. but still in that same Tri City area. You know, there's nothing out there. Yeah, so it wasn't as uh, bad.
1: So,
0: no, so now, so I was driving from Wood River to Grand Island. And uh, going out to work out there at the airport. And sure enough, uh, the line manager, they would ask him to go do test flights or ferry flights on airplanes. And he would take me along with him and he would let me fly. And before I knew it, that summer, after I graduated high school in 96, that summer, I started right away at my private pilot flying lessons. Basically, I was pumping gas and then taking that paycheck and just renting the airplane you know, nice. right away. And yeah, just going my straight lessons. back into your flying lessons, right? Yeah. And basically, at the time, I I really I even uh, my guidance counselor there at the high school he had found out that UND had a good aviation program. Uh, We didn't have any information about Embry Riddle or anything like that, but he 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 came across UND and UND sent me a ton of stuff about their aviation program, and I debated on going out there. It looked awesome, Uh, but there was the cost. It was just like, gosh, I don't know if I can really afford that. And so I think uh, I'll try to stay at the University of Nebraska. And so while interning at the at the FBO, now working out there full time in the summer, um, the my manager, he pointed me towards the University of Nebraska at Kearney. And that's where he did his aviation degree. And they had a four year degree called Aircraft Systems Management, was a four year degree for a professional pilot and looked into it. And sure enough, I enrolled right away. That's and awesome. they offer they offer a four year degree and you come out with all of your ratings. Plus, a, it's, a, it's a bachelor's degree in aircraft systems. And so I went ahead and did my private on my own that summer just so I could start my freshman year with my private already in my pocket. And you test out of once if you show up to the show up to the university with any of those ratings, they'll give you credit for it and they just they'll just have you test out of it. So I already tested out my private right away the first start of the semester and started my four year degree and all my flying lessons there at uh Kearney, which is, you know, so Wood Rivers is right in between Grandon and Kearney. What I would do is to save money for flight training, I elected to stay living at my parents' house. I lived in their basement you know Yeah. Uh, so there's no shame in it when you're trying to build an aviation career as expensive it is and Definitely this is not, yeah. and it was in 1990s you know compared to today 's dollars if I got off cheap for the flight training you know now I today it's just astronomical through the roof uh, but back then, I was renting airplanes for you know thirty five bucks an hour and
1: yeah, add incredible. another,
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and then add another fifteen bucks for instructor, you know. So I'm paying, you know, roughly, you know, fifty bucks an hour to go do my commercial ratings. So I was living at my parents' house. I would drive from Wood River to Kearney, which is a good forty-five minute drive for class. You know, you get all your general studies, and then you start doing your electives. You know, physics, civics, all those other fun. You know, general ed classes there at the mm-hmm. university. But then we, then we started doing the other the really fun classes. We did aviation law, did air traffic control, human factors in aviation, uh, all sorts of great aviation courses. And I kept all my textbooks. I loved those classes. But then I would drive, then um, we would do all the flight training out there in Kearney at the airport, but I also still had the lineman job out in Grand Island. So what I would do is I would drive then from Kearney to Grand Island to go work my shift at the FBO in Grand Island which is another hour drive the opposite direction. Oh, wow. And I was, I spent a lot of years on the road driving to and from uh, airports. But I loved my lineman job. I loved uh, pumping gas at night. And that kind of um, segues into what, how my career even advanced from there is uh, I met a um, – while pumping gas there at Grand Island, there was a there's a company in Omaha, uh, Suburban Air Freight, Subair. Um, I don't know if that, are they even still out there in Omaha? Have you looked uh, recently? I, think so. I
1: actually, I think
0: so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you might've seen their airplanes. I think yeah. they're still out there. Um, anyways, they used to fly these air commanders and they would come in twice a night. One would be coming from Omaha, land in grand Island, drop off some mail, pick up some gas and then go on out to Alliance, Nebraska, out in the panhandle of the state. Yeah, state. And then an hour later, the one coming from Alliance going to Omaha would come through. So, Two times a night, 11:30 and 12:30, uh, the FBO manager would pay me an extra 25 bucks to come out in the middle of the night, and gas up these two airplanes, and call it a night. While doing this, one of the pilots that worked for them started chatting me up, and he realized I was an aspiring pilot. And he, his thing was he loved mentoring uh, guys my age, you know, how to, you know, get a career in aviation. He he really took it upon himself because he realized that out in the boonies of nebraska it's really hard to get your foot in the door so flying through he would he would recognize youths that were you know really trying to put forth an effort to make a career he'd guide them and as i was chatting with him i real he he basically would bring it up to me that this flying gig that he had was only his part-time job his full-time job was a corporate pilot there in omaha and he just volunteered to work extra for Subair on his days off because it might be a downtime with his corporate gig. And what he flew was a 400 series Cessnas. He had a 414 and a 421 that he flew for. Oh, wow. So, he so visiting with him while pumping gas, he would say, Hey, I got a trip next week. Drive up to Omaha and we'll go fly this trip together. And that's exactly what I did. And that's kind of how I start my uh, my flying career as a, you know, Doing, getting exposed to corporate flying, you know, putting on the suit and you know actually taking care of the passengers, all and flying into all these different small airports, taking these business people to meetings and whatnot, and it was fun. And he loved it. He he called it. It's like, hey, the you know, airline life is a bus driver. I'm a limo driver. I drive these <laughs> corporate guys around. Yeah. That's how he. Uh, that's how he would explain it. And so so he was my next step, He and he became my biggest mentor in my flying career.
1: You know, it's cool that you say that because there's so many pilots who just want to help other pilots out. And one of the best jobs you can do is just anything at an airport. Just go fuel planes. Just go talk to people. Just go walk around. Everyone wants to talk aviation. You will see that. Like, that's part of this podcast is that it's so easy to talk to people because we just have – a common interest and we can all talk about it for for hours or days so just go work in an airport go fuel planes and you will find people and you will meet the right people to help you further pursue your career
0: exactly right yeah it's all about networking that's for sure um so yeah that was kind of how i really came up into flying as a as a kind of pull myself up by the bootstraps is from nowhere in nebraska to captain at a regional airline today
1: that's awesome. What was the uh, process from going from – so you were a, a commercial pilot. What jobs did you get to help build your hours to get at a regional airline? Well, after after college, uh, my mentor from Omaha,
0: he recommended I start flight instructing full-time in Lincoln just because the the student pool was just that much larger out in Lincoln, Nebraska. So after college, I then moved to Lincoln and started flying for an FBO – that had, I was a full service FBO there in Lincoln, Nebraska. They did charter, maintenance, avionics, and flight instruction. So, started flight instruction there, summer of 2000. I just graduated college. I have roughly 600 hours of flying time in my logbook at this point. And back in 2000, uh, regionals weren't even looking at people. To be competitive, you needed at least the magic 2002 is what we all called it. 2,000 yeah. hours total time with 200 hours of multi. The magic 2002. So everyone was struggling to get that 2002, and this was the summer of nineteen, the summer of 2000, just after I graduated. So you just plug away. I was plugging away every day, flight instructing. I would, I was flight instructing pretty hard that summer. There were some days where I'd put in a good seven, eight hours of my logbook. and then of course some days not so much because of weather and whatnot. But the student, you could, the student pool is large enough you could fly as much as you wanted to. Um, and then of course uh, the mentor in Omaha, he would still let me do right seat flying with him and log a few hours, log a few hours here and there, multi time that precious multi time. Um, but the charter department, um, and this is kind of kind of segues into my accident. Um, my mentor, his name was Dick Smith, and he's he's dead and gone. He died of cancer just a couple years ago, yeah. and it was really kind of sad. But uh, he um he had another protege, and his name was Raja. He was from Singapore, and Dick took Raja under his wings, and Raja was his pride and joy. If uh, and he, I'm trying to think the best way to describe Raja. Basically, he he. Raja was Dick's greatest protege because he he loved flying so much that Raja's enthusiasm for flying just infected you. He he really he didn't instruct just to build hours. He instructed because he wanted to instruct. Right. But he also had, he had dreams of flying bigger stuff. He he had he had huge aviation career aspirations, but he didn't make light of flight instructing at all. And the students loved him for it. The chief pilots loved him for it. Everybody thought Raja was amazing, and it showed. Uh, Raja was an extremely humble person. So not only so Dick Smith helped me get the job at Silver Rock but Raja was already there, and Raja was thriving. And yeah. that's when Dick had said, "Logan, get the Silver Hawk, start flying there." Well, Raja had been there so long already that the chief pods at Silver Rock at the time recognized Raja's potential, and they put Raja right away into the charter department. And so Raja was flying charters in the baron 58 he was flying stuff in the uh, 340 and the 414 and Some awesome equipment yeah great equipment and eventually now as after a summer of flight instructing non-stop come around the winter time i finally had gotten myself back up i was i was close to a, around 1100 hours by january of 2001 and I let the chief pilot know that. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm getting close to 1,200 hours. And that was what they wanted you to have to start flying the 135 stuff is 1,200 hours. So they go, okay, here's what we're going to do is we want to move Raja up into the turbine airplanes. We, they had King Airs and they had Citations there. It's like we're going to move Raja up to those airplanes. So we want you to start doing the Baron flying when you hit your 1,200 hours. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to start flying with Raja on every Baron trip, and if there's if that plane's empty, we want you flying in the left seat and building time in that airplane. And we had the Silverhawk was a air ambulance operation as well. We did normal charters, but they did fixed wing air ambulance operations as well in a King Air. And we had a, a weekly morning, uh, every Tuesday, every Wednesday morning at 5:30 in the morning, we'd take this Baron. And we take it to north central Nebraska. We take it up to Valentine, Nebraska. And we'd be delivering these radioactive isotopes to a mm-hmm. heart hospital there. And Because the drive was like a six-hour drive, but we can do it in the Baron in an hour. Yeah. So every Wednesday morning, that's, that was Raj's bread and butter. That was Raj's gig. And Raj was getting tired of it, of course. And they wanted Raj to go fly the other airplanes. So they said, okay, hey, uh, guess what? We're going to have you start doing that Baron run once you get the 1200 hours. So in the meantime, fly with Raja every Wednesday morning, because when you dump that cargo, you fly the airplane back under part 91 and you're going to be in the left seat and you're going to build that time, in that airplane, it might be an hour, you know, one a week, but Hey, you're at least getting that extra hour in the Baron multi-time PIC. So that's what we were doing. And I did that several times with Raj that summer. And, uh, Raj was very thorough, very professional. And, uh, there was a few times where I go with Raj and we go into Valentine and the weather would be too low because the town of Valentine, the only approach that you get in there was an NDB approach. That's all that they had. And this is before the airplane had, this is night. This is 2000 winter of 2001. The airplane had just basic avionics. It didn't have GPS. It had a Loran, but there's no, there's no Loran approaches. You could use the Loran for navigation, but, um, Get down into the airport. You only you had to shoot a full-on NDB approach, and if it's the weather's low, you're not getting in. And we turn around, come right back to Lincoln, and no, no one would say a word. Never got, never got pressure like, oh, you should have flown low or anything like that. Right? They just accepted it. Like, yep, you never, you didn't get in. Oh well, that sucks. You know, they never had pressure on us to go. So that's one thing I loved about Silverhawk Aviation is the management there was great, but um. Finally, eventually, on February seventh, two 2001, again, I'm flying with Raja. He had just come back from spending a month home at Singapore. That's where he was from originally, was Singapore. Mm-hmm. And he had just come back. This was his first trip back, and I'm flying with him again. And it's, it's IFR. It's, the, it's, it's really ironic because uh, I normally, uh, at the time when I was building those hours, I'd only update my logbook like once a week. But for some reason, that day, that Tuesday, February 6th, I had updated my logbook that night, and I'd flown like six hours that day. The weather was gorgeous. It was yeah. like 65 degrees, gorgeous, severe, clear day. And now the next day, it's IFR, it's cold. So obviously we're anticipating getting icing in this Baron 58. So we, uh, the airplane, it didn't have a, an, a hot plate. For a deicer, it had just an alcohol tank that would spray alcohol on the window and props to clear the ice off, mm. and it had boots, so we knew we we anticipated of getting ice. We plan on kicking it off, and that's exactly what we did. We took off. There was a winter storm forecasted to come through the next the following evening into the next day on Thursday, but you could tell the weather was starting to kind of come in a little bit. Like I said, low ceilings, cool, cold weather, but there were other guys. There was a couple of. Uh, 340 and the 414 pilots they were getting ready to do a charter as well in that general direction that we were going and they thought yeah the weather's gonna be it's gonna be crappy tomorrow that's for sure but we're gonna get this trip done today so raj and i we blast off out of lincoln and we're picking up light ice the whole way there and we're kicking it off their boots we change altitudes climb higher to get out of the ice um raj is you know i had no no um no reason to doubt Raja's judgments. Raja knew the airplane way more than I did. I'm still green behind the ears. You know, here I am with rough just right at around 1,200 hours now, and barely 50 hours of multi time. And uh, we're kicking off the ice of the boots. And you know, the airplane, the Baron 58, it has, is not certified for flight in known icing conditions. So we're doing our best to stay out of it. You know, we climb altitude, but we're still picking it up here and there. Right. But what, what really hurt us was the, the window was constantly building ice. And, but we had the alcohol system, but you don't dare use that until you get on an instrument approach. That way you, the ice is off the window in time for you to make a landing and doesn't build back up. You know, you really only it's – it's like a one-and-done type of deal. Yeah. So we let, the, we let the ice continually build on the window until we know we're going to come into land. But uh, we keep the heater on the airplane, and Raj asked me to crawl into the back and make sure all the gaspers are closed. So we have all the hot air blowing up onto the window just to minimize the ice buildup on there. So we're flying along and we're getting close to Valentine and we turn on we're able to tune in the ASOS and the ASOS is all of a sudden reporting freezing rain. Oh, and no. Raja Raja shakes his head, uh uh, nope, nope, nope. We're not we're not going there. So uh we turn the airplane around and there's an airport literally that's we're almost just practically over. It's Ainsworth, Nebraska, and we immediately tune over to the ASOS for the Ainsworth airport. It's reporting, uh, it was marginal VFR, it was like three thousand, four thousand, 4,000 something overcast, five miles missed, but no freezing precipitation yet. And so we ask, uh, the center, hey, can we get vectored on the VOR approach in the Ainsworth? We're gonna land and take a look at this weather some more. So we're starting to get vectored on this VOR approach, and uh, center loses a radar contact with us just because radar coverage in that part of the state at that altitude is shoddy at best. So now we've lost radar contact. So that means we've got to do a full published approach now. So we're going to go outbound on the VOR radio, which is on the field. The VOR is on the field. The approach course lines you up the runway, but we've got to go outbound. Now we do the procedure turn. And as we're doing the procedure turn, now's the time when we kick on the alcohol. So we kick on the alcohol to clean off the window and, uh, we had noticed earlier that it was taking more and more power to maintain our current airspeed. So we know we're we're definitely icing up on the unprotected surfaces now because it's just taking more we're getting the more drag out there all the time. And so we're on the procedure turn, we've we got the alcohol on and it's working. We can see the fluid is draining past the side of the windows. And the tank goes from full to empty in a matter of seconds. It doesn't take long at all for yeah. that that pump to pump out all that alcohol out and it, it runs dry we run it dry and um, not a single piece of ice comes out the forward window oh, we're, yeah. we're we're completely blind so we're flying this approach we're getting established inbound and we still have the asos tuned to the number two radio just to hear if there's any change and sure enough it starts reporting freezing rain now so we know we're we're in trouble. This is this is not – we've gotten ourselves into a situation now that there's really – we have no room to get out of. So we're shooting the VR approach, and we descend down to the MDA, and we break out of the clouds. We can see out the side windows, and it's still dark. It's early in the morning enough to where it's still completely dark. But we can see the ground. We can see farmhouses. So – All is not lost, but we can't see forward. That's the only problem. We can't see forward. So our faces are pressed against the side of the windows. We debate, hey, should we maybe kick the rudder a little bit? And we kind of go, eh, with the way the ice is building on the airplane, we don't know what's going to happen if we try to kick that rudder to see out the side a little bit better. So we, we maintain the course flying the VOR inbound, and the needle does the flip on us. We just flew right over the VOR. And out the side of the window, we see the runway going by underneath us. So uh, we we knew well enough that we can't do a missed approach. We know we're we're in serious trouble now. So uh, we know the airport's terrain. There's you know it's Nebraska. There's no there's no mountains. There's no obstructions at all around this airport. So we stay at the MDA and we circle back around, and we get a good view of the runway out Raj's window at the left, and we make basically left-hand traffic at the MDA, circling the field, trying to get down. And we get a beam the numbers, and we're trying to make a base layer and try to get lined up with that, run, that needle again and try to land on that runway and hope we land on it. And right then, as we get a beam the numbers, the airplane just gives the slightest little stall buffet, not a full stall, just enough to let you know that it, it's not, it's not going to stay flying much longer. And Raja instinctively knew what was happening, and he had everything firewalled as best he could, and the airplane just would not hold altitude anymore. Anytime he tried to hold altitude, he'd feel that little stall buffet. So basically, we are just slowly coming down and down and down. We never hit a full stall, but she was coming down. And uh, we ended up crashing just a quarter mile north of the runway and a le- in a slight left-wing low attitude. And the airplane literally exploded on impact um I had uh woke up when I, I got knocked out when the airplane hit the ground and exploded when I came to finally when I woke up well actually I got back up my first conscious thought uh my last the last sound I heard was the props digging the dirt. I just remember hearing the the props hitting the dirt and just 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 tons of ruckus and noise like crazy. And my last conscious thought was, "Man, our chief pod's gonna be so pissed." Yeah. <laughs> that was my last. <laughs> that was my last conscious thought. Um, well, that and also, well, uh, that first stall shutter, I, I said a little quick private prayer. I, I, I thought I was goner. I thought yeah. this was this is it. Um, please make this quick and painless, is how I, how I kind of said a quick little prayer. But at the same time, I still thought, "Oh my God," because I remember hearing the props digging the dirt. It's like, hey, I we hit the ground and I'm still alive, you know. Man, Chief Pond's gonna be so so upset. Um, but then I got quickly knocked out. Uh, when I came to, when I woke up, I was in, I was actually still strapped to my seat, but I was in the back of the airplane. My seat had broken off the rails. I was oh, laying wow. sideways. I was laying sideways in the back of this Baron, still strapped to my chair, and there was fire crackling out in the wingtips. Uh, there was no fire in the cabin at that time, um, but my vision was extremely blurred, and I could hear fire crackling out in the wingtips. So my seat is lodged sideways in the back of the airplane, and I eventually crawl up. still The seat still strapped to me up towards the front of the airplane, and the door on the Baron 58, the door's on the right-hand side. It was gone. There's no door there. So I basically fall out the side and roll down the wing still strapped in my chair and finally I'm, I'm finally able to undo the seatbelt and get the seat off of me and I stand up and I just look around and the airplane's on fire there's a trail of fire we the it was a the field that we landed in just north of the runway was a uh, a plowed cornfield there's like all these corn stalks broken corn stalks in the field and there's like we left like a twin trail of fire um through this field, and then I slowly realized that Raja is still sitting there in the airplane. so I get back up and I try to get him out of the cockpit and now the fire that was on the wingtips well now the airplane's sitting there the wings are broken it the fuels it's just fueling that fire that's getting really bad yeah I had to I had I gotta get away from it because I'm thinking this thing's gonna blow up with me standing under underneath it. Uh, the Ainsworth Airport—it's an uncontrolled airport. There's no one out there. It's, you know, no one. I mean, if, if you think Hastings is a boring place, then you need to go check out uh, Ainsworth, Nebraska. Yeah. Uh. So uh. So I think no one saw us crash. No one knows we've crashed. I got a call for help. I need help getting Raja out. I can't do this alone. So I start running through the cornfield, or the plowed corn rows, I guess. And it's it's it's. It's raining pretty hard. It's freezing rain. It's raining hard. And I'm running through this mud trying to get to the airport. And I see the beacon. I can see the runway lights. And I know there's a pilot shack there. They leave and unlock. I know there's a phone in there I can get to. I just got to get to it. So I'm running through the field. And finally, a pickup truck pulls in. And its headlights just shine right at me. And I run for the pickup truck instead. And shortly thereafter, a second pickup truck pulls in. It's like, oh, thank God. Some people actually saw us go down. And I start calling out to them, waving my arms, and finally a voice answers back, and I run to him, and his name's Brian Williams. And he asked me, is her name was I still in the airplane? I said, yeah, my friend Raja is still in the airplane. And right then, a woman driving to work, her name was Kendra Hollenbeck, she, she grabs me, and he looks at her, hey, get him to the hospital. I'm going to go out to the airplane. And uh, she starts driving me to the hospital. And But she very makes it very clear to me the hospital is six miles away, but I'm driving on gravel roads, and the freezing rain so bad I can't drive faster than 10 miles an hour, otherwise Jeez. we're going to fight off the road. That's how bad the rain was at this point. And so she's driving very, very slowly, getting me to the hospital. Meanwhile, Brian runs out to the airplane, and it, by this point, he can't get within 50 feet of it. It's burning so hot. He, he can't even get close to it. It's burning that bad. So Raja was still in the airplane when it burned up. Um, thankfully in the autopsy report, um, basically when my burns, this is how they know this is, um, my lungs were extremely burned. I, I was breathing through the whole crash explosion. Like I had inhaled the flames and the smoke and everything and all the heat. My lungs were physically burned on the inside very badly. Raja's lungs we clean. His lungs were untouched. And that tells the coroner that Ra- Raja died on impact. He, he was, he was dead the whole time when I was trying to get him out. He was, he was already gone. Um, so I, I find solace in that very much so that he didn't suffer at all. He literally, he died at the minute we hit the ground. And for some reason, my seat broke and threw me in the back of the airplane. There's no, no. other exp- explanation on why I'm alive and he's not, but I'm alive. And, uh, so Kendra gets me to the hospital in Ainsworth, and it's just a—it's not—it's a hospital that treats like broken legs and stuff like that. My—I am—it's—it's it's, uh, still dark. I'm unaware of how injured I am. You know, I'm—I'm—I thought I was able to talk. I thought I was enunciating clearly, but in uh, hearing the stories from both Brian and Kendra, I—I I thought I was yelling it turns out i was whispering because oh, wow. my lungs are so burned uh, my vocal cords were burned my lungs were burned i thought i was screaming but the adrenaline and stuff you just don't notice things like that but yeah i, I was whispering to them um, i was that badly burned and it was dark out i was on un- i couldn't see how badly burned i was but as kendra's driving me to the hospital the sun is starting to come up now and now as i'm sitting here i'm starting to all the thoughts start going through my mind I'm starting to realize very quickly just how bad a shape I am. I could see my pants. My pants are completely black. I was wearing a a polyester sweater. Yeah, that's completely melted onto my arms. And then I start to have this horrendous smell. And I, and I kind of thought I just ran through a muddy cornfield and sometimes farmers let their cattle graze those corn stalks. So either I'm covered in cow manure or I'm smelling my own flesh that's burned. And, it's just like those things start going through your mind. She eventually gets me to the hospital there in Ainsworth, and they stabilize me, and they immediately – they call – well, the only fixed-wing air ambulance. They call Silverhawk Aviation and say, hey, we got a burn victim here. Uh, can you fly up and get him? And so the pilot on call goes to the weather computer and looks at it and goes, uh, well, if you called us maybe an hour ago, we would have said, yeah, but now it's not looking so good there. So they say no to an air ambulance operation. But then an hour, shortly thereafter, the county sheriff calls Silver Rock Aviation. Hey, you guys got an aircraft down, one dead, one severely burned. And then they real they realized who that they put two, two together. Oh my gosh, that burned person that we're supposed to go get is one of our own. Right. So the pilots sit, The pilots all gathered. They were getting ready to fly again and find the chief pilot a and I was like, "Guys, we've already lost one airplane to this weather system. Let's not risk another one." So again, they say, "No, we're, we can't come get, and we can't risk it." Those other airplanes that had taken off just behind us in that same direction—they called air traffic control. They send those guys back immediately. So um, what they end up having to do is they stabilize me. They had to get me to a burn unit, uh, but the freezing rain is so bad they can't—they can't fly me out. And obviously, driving is extremely hazardous. So, what they do is they get a county uh, sand truck to drive, to make the drive from Ainsworth, Nebraska to Lincoln, which is like a six hour drive on good ro- road conditions. They have a sand truck driving in front of the ambulance for a good four hours, clearing the road for this ambulance to get me to Lincoln. So, and this is, and this whole story, this is all told to me after the fact. By this point, they pretty much put me in a medically induced coma. They uh, had me all intubated. I was on a ventilator breathing for me. When I finally get to the burn unit in Lincoln, Nebraska, it's only then when they realize how badly burned I am. Uh, they they pretty much say I have burns 75% of my body all over my head, my face, my arms. And But that's not what they're worried about. They tell my folks, my parents at the time, that um, they're only giving me a 10% chance to live. Oh, wow my lungs were so burned. My lungs were not producing any oxygen. They, they, they thought his lungs, they're, they're just done for. They asked my parents, was I a smoker? And they said, well, no, I never was a smoker. And the doctor said, well, he's got that going for him because had he been a smoker, then this would be a done deal. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I wasn't a smoker saved my life pretty much. There was a pulmonologist, a lung doctor, and he told my folks, uh, I'm going to work on him every day. And so I have a permanent scar where I had a trach in my throat. And uh, this trach was open in my throat for a good four months. And every day for the first several weeks when I was unconscious, he would take a brush and basically shove it down my lungs and scrub my lungs, keeping them clean on the inside and getting them to heal. And eventually, uh, about three to four weeks later after the crash, I was finally allowed to wake up. and. I woke up in the burn unit there in at the uh, Lincoln Nebraska. And so there I, there I became fully aware just how lucky I was to be alive but also how severely injured I was. I mean burns all of my legs, uh my right hand had to be amputated, all the fingers on my right hand had to be amputated down to the first knuckle. So um and all the scar tissue grew up in between what was left of those knuckles. So Basically, I have, like, a mitten for a right hand. Yeah. And then, of course, my head, my face, my ears all, all burned off. So I, I have no ears anymore, and uh, my face is all burned. And this is all when I'm 22 years old. You know, I thought I had my whole flying career ahead of me. Um, you know how I said my vision was blurred when I woke up in the back of the airplane. Uh, one thing that they didn't realize is um, – my parents had asked him my, asked the doctors, "How are his eyes?" and they said, "Well, his eyes are fine and my parent, my mom told the doctor, "Well, he has contacts, how are his eyes?" And they realize, "You mean he has contacts?" They come back and they look at me again. This is all when I'm still unconscious, knocked out. My contacts had melted in my eyes oh
1: my and they had
0: they had melted in such a way that when they check your pupils that they were melted to such a sheen that they really couldn't even see that I was wearing contacts. That's how bad that they got melted on there. They had to call an eye surgeon in to come basically scrape off the contacts off my eyes. And he did an awesome job because it hasn't – my vision has unaffected, affected, and that's, I still see him to this day. That's the eye doctor I go to now. Every time I see him, he gives me a huge hug when he sees me because he remembers that day very much. So That's crazy. So – I spent a good three and a half months in living in a hospital room at the age of 22. And I mean, what 22 year old wants to live in a hospital room, <laughs> you know, yeah. 22, 22 years old. That's, that's when you're supposed to be out having fun with your friends, going out to barbecues and bars and clubs and all sorts of fun stuff. and and here I am, uh, basically at my mindset was I lost my flying career. You know, I had my hand pretty much amputated down to everything at the first knuckle, you know, all my face has been burned off, and now I've laid in this bed now for several months. My folks and all my friends, all my fo- pilot friends, all my aviation friends—they never let me feel down. They always made me feel, felt like I was who I was. They decorated my room in Star Wars posters and airplane posters. <laughs> um, uh, my my hospital room became an apartment, and all the nursing staff loved it. They've never they've never seen um someone treat their hospital room like that before and and I and I totally attribute my recovery as to having my hospital feel like a home yeah so I had I, I had MTV on all day um all sorts of movies and all sorts of stuff but yeah. laying in that bed made it so where my muscles didn't work anymore so when I finally was released from the hospital a good 4 months later I couldn't walk on my own I couldn't walk I couldn't even Couldn't even hold a cup of water. Um, So my mom had to live with me for quite a while, driving me to physical therapy. It took me another good six months to learn how to walk again on my own. And then a couple more months after that before I could even, you know, do things on my own, like bathe myself, brush my teeth, and then I was able to start driving a car again. Uh, So the recovery took almost a good full two years after the accident before I was finally said and done. I had all sorts of reconstructive surgeries and therapies done. So after all that was done, it was around 2003 now where I got to realize now that, you know, my flying career is over and I got a four year degree in aircraft systems management that I really can't use now because I think my flying career is over. So I go back to school and I remember how back in high school I was always a computer junkie. I used to... uh Build, build computers up to play the latest flight sims. So I was always I always had a knack for computers. So I went back to school, and I got an associate degree, and it was a double major in uh, IT support and networking. And I figured, hey, I might as well just uh, work on computers for the rest of my career. That's going to be my new job. So I got that. I did it quick. It was a little two-year program. So 2005, all my friends that I flew with at Silverhawk, they're all getting hired by regionals because around two thousand four, two thousand five was when the regional explosion happened big time. And this is when you hear stories of guys with only two hundred hours, you know, getting hired at, you know, regionals such as Mesa and whatnot. Yeah. So I just feel like I totally missed the boat, you know, and, and I lived vicariously through them. You know, they would come home and tell me stories of all their all their fun flying and things like that. And I miss it, you know, but at the same time, I accept that this is what I'm doing now. Um, so I was starting to do the, I got a, I got a job, um, working IT at a small, small company there in Nebraska, but I wanted to be involved in aviation somehow. Uh, so I eventually got a job with Duncan Aviation and Lincoln, working their, uh, working one of their parts desk I was a materials expediter. Basically, I would, uh, Get in the computer and work on the database and order parts for their parts department, uh, specifically the interior, ordering things like Gaspers and seatbelt buckles and everything like that. So now I'm at the airport, so I can at least talk about airplanes now. I can talk about airplane parts, and I'm working a desk job. I'm driving a desk. But now that I'm sitting at the airport, I'm hearing airplanes constantly coming and going. And the pilot in me is like, I got to go out and go see what that is taking off. So I'd always run – every time I'd hear something cool, and thankfully I had a coworker who had a love of aviation as much as I did, we'd hear something rumble outside, (laughs) and I'd look over my shoulder, he'd look over his shoulder, and it's like, let's go. Let's go out and see what it is. (laughs) And we'd go out and go look at it. Um, So eventually i just start realizing, it's like, you know what? i got to get back into flying. Uh, So I start the process of getting my medical back. And the FAA – makes me jump through a whole bunch of hoops to get my medical back. Um, They want me to see a neurologist since I got knocked out in the crash, make sure all my nerves are working. I got motor control, motor function and everything. They want me to see another pulmonologist, make sure my lungs are producing good enough oxygen. Uh, They want me to see a uh, physical therapist to make sure all my limbs are limber as they should be. And then they make me see a psychiatrist to make sure I don't have any PTSD or anything like that. And I go through all four of those things, pass it with flying colors, and I send it all to Oklahoma City. About a month later, I get a letter back from Oklahoma City and they say, okay, hey, here's your medical. You now have to go, but for this medical to be valid, you need to go take a statement of demonstrated ability, a soda ride is what they call it. And they say, just take this, go down to your FISDO, and they'll have someone go ride with you. And that's all they do. Um, it's not, you're not held to any standards they just fly with you to make sure you physically can manipulate everything that's in the airplane that's all that they look at for your soda oh, uh, ride
1: so the faa was not necessary they weren't really against you getting back into the plane then no absolutely not
0: Abs- no not at all that's so good. i do this soda ride and i do it in a little uh just a cherokee and I don't do it in multi-engine airplane because I'm thinking I'm not going to fly any twin engine or anything like that in my near future. I just want to have uh, my single engine back again so I can go fly for fun. And working there at the airport, I get wind of a quarter share in a Grumman Yankee, a little two-seater Grumman. And really cheap. Um, the guys do their own maintenance on it because they got an AMP with them. So it's really cheap airplanes for me to buy into. So I buy into it. And I start flying it on nights and weekends. The hangar's right there behind the FBO. So I'd call my wife and say, hey, I'm going to go fly today after work. At the time, she was cool with it. And uh, we'd go fly. And one of my friends who was still in town, flight instructing, he kind of started his own little flight school on the side. And he was now up to his eyeballs and students. And he he wants to start throwing some my way. And he really wants me to start flight instructing again. And at this point, I, I agreed to him. I was like, sure, you know what? Maz might as well start making a little bit of extra money flight instructing. So in addition to my desk job at Duncan Aviation, I start flying uh, flight instructor for fun. Eventually, a student comes in my lab, He's paralyzed below the waist. Oh, wow. And he got in with another group of pilots on the field. Um, they had helped him get set up with a Piper Colt, which uh, has just one handbrake. It doesn't have tow brakes. That's just one single handbrake, and they mount an aluminum bar on the right rudder pedal, and they bungee it just below the throttle. So when he wants right rudder, he pushes in on the aluminum bar. If he wants left rudder, he pulls out on it. Oh wow! So they and they bungee it right below the throttle, right next to the handbrake, and he flies it like no tomorrow. He he, I I go up with him and do crosswinds with him, and he he had it. He was just just fine it. So I get with the uh, the FAA inspector who did my soda ride, and he was a great he was a great inspector, and he's he's since retired. But I go to him and say, hey, I got a student; he's ready for his private, but he's paralyzed. And he's like, well, he's got his medical, and let me see the um and this aluminum bar that you built for him. And let me see the specs on that. And I show him everything for the logbook for the airplane. He's like, he's happy with it. It's like, you know what? I'll I'll give him a private check ride.
1: That's so cool. And he
0: did it. He did it, he passed, and he's a private pilot now. That's awesome. So there's a fly breakfast, and he wants to fly me there as kind of a celebration, but he wants to fly me there as a passenger, not his instructor. So, of course, I go along with him. We're sitting there holding short in Lincoln, and here comes SkyWest leaving the terminal, and they take off. And he's like, Logan, how come you don't do that? And I was like, Shad... Look at my hands. Look at my face. You know, those days are gone, man. I, I'm not going to be able to fly a jet like that. I mean, with my right hand the way it is, there's no way I can hold a th- uh, an airline-style yoke in the right seat. And if I did fly in the left seat, there's no way I can get the thrust reversers with my nub of a hand the way it is. And he just kind of shook his head. He's like, you know what? A lot of guys told me I couldn't fly until I got with all the other guys at the hangar to help me get in this airplane. So there's no reason why I don't think you could fly for an airline. And he had heard stories like guys, they're hiring guys left and right. They need pots. They're hiring guys with only a couple hundred hours. How many hours do you have now, Logan? And at this time, I had I was like a 1500 hours total time and like a like 60, 70 multi. And it's like that no, time doesn't matter. They're gonna meet me, Ron. They're gonna meet me, and uh, they're gonna they're gonna laugh me out the door. They're gonna see why I'm not flying for anybody. It's like, well, you at least gotta go try. And at the time, my son was only six months old at the time, and I realized I I will have to someday explain to my son why I gave up on my passion for flying. you know, And and I need to be able to tell him that I did try everything possible to get back into flying. So I I only applied for two airlines. I applied for uh, uh, SkyWest being one of them, and uh, Republic was the other one. And the only reason why I chose Republic is because back in my flight instructing days, back in two thousand, Chautauqua always used to fly into Lincoln all the time. And I always thought those Chautauqua guys were cool. You know, I like those Chautauqua guys. Yeah. So so I thought that's the that's the only thing I'm gonna apply for I'm not gonna go to Great Lakes, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna come go to some airline just because I want to be a pilot. So I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna try to go to one of the better ones. Skywest never called me, but Republic did. And I went to the interview at Republic and right from the get-go, um, I got the feeling that they, they wanted they wanted to hire me. Um, they, they liked my enthusiasm, they definitely appreciated my experience. And of course, you know when, when a group of people interviewed an airline, everyone exchanges numbers, you know, find out who got the call, who didn't. And as I'm leaving the interview back at the airport, there's like a group of us right there walking through the terminal. All their phones are ringing off the hook. often them class dates. Mine, mine never rings, and I'm thinking, yeah, okay. Um, I think at least, at least I know I tried, right? So about a week later, I um, I write a thank you letter to the people that interviewed me, and um, the very next day, I get a phone call from them. Hey, hey, we want you to know that we we do want to hire you. We were just debating on when to put you in class because you made it very clear that you had to give two weeks' notice. And that was the reason why everyone was getting those phone calls because they were willing to drop their jobs on a heartbeat to go to the next available class. And, right. and me, and me, I very much appreciated my job at the FBO in Lincoln. I told them there's no way. I, I can't just leave a drop a hat. I need to leave on good terms. I need to leave on two weeks' notice. And they offered me a class in January of 2008. That's awesome. And so when I get to this, when I go through NDOC and get to the SIM, um, no one really questions my ability to fly the airplane. They see it as we're going to put you in the SIM. And if you can do it, you can do it. And if you don't, you don't. And we'll deal with that later right now. Let's just, let's just see if you can do it. And my SIM instructor was very patient with me. And I sat there in the airplane. Um, from when I had, a got into that Grumman Yankee, I had a custom fitted batting glove for my right hand. Cause all it is, is about, of it's almost like a nub. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have much, I don't have much grip on my right hand. So I had a custom fitting batting glove, which gives me a really good grip. Now, of a sudden, with that right hand and the way I'm on the Ember 175 and the way that Ram horn yoke is, I can cup my right hand just perfectly at the top, at the top corner of it, just really good. And, um, and I'm able to fly it just fine. Uh, awesome. I and they they had no problems with it, and that's basically what's going on nine years ago now, and that was kind of how I'm still here at Republic now. Um, the Ember 170, I'm very much comfortable in the airplane because of my disability. I know I can fly it reliably, and I've now upgraded on it. And again, um, I had to relearn everything when I upgraded to the left seat. Now I have my good hand on the yoke. But now I got my my right hand on the throttle quadrant, and I can manipulate the throttles just fine. I had to get my finger somehow into that thrust versus trigger, and I'm able to do it. I don't do both at the same time. I get one back, and then I get the second one over the gate, and then I slam them both back in reverse. That's awesome. And, so, and that's how I overcome my disability.
1: That's so encouraging Um, to hear that they gave you a chance and shout out to Republic for not turning you away and not laughing at you. Like you said, it's just, they gave you a chance. They wanted to see if you could do it. And that is, that's just so awesome to me. It just kind of shows the type of company that they could be. And it might be a good regional for people to work for because they gave you a chance to do what you wanted to do. Oh, absolutely. That's, um, that was, you
0: know, with the way the industry is right now, you know, you you hear guys going on to the majors every which direction. Um, And there there are some people that are considering careers at a regional. There's nothing wrong with that at all. And that is part of my loyalty with Republic is they're one of the ones that gave me a chance. Not only did they give me a chance, but I'm very comfortable in the airplane. I have a friend who's at a major. Um, He wants me to apply really bad to come fly at that major. And he's on a 737. Yeah. And, and he, he thinks I could fly a 737, no problem. But, I have my own personal doubts. Like, gosh, I don't know if I can fly it reliably. Whereas I know I can fly the 170 just fine. So jokingly, I told him, "It's like, hey, on your next crosswind landing, when you're flying that in, I want you to fly that 737 yoke. I want you to fly it open-handed. Don't grab the yoke because you got to fly it like I do. You got to have your hand open." And he's like, "I don't know if I can do that." And I was like, "Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not easy. And the Boeing style yoke, I I can't see my right hand gripping it." a Boeing style yoke, but I need to back up a little bit more. Um, I didn't just, um, apply blindly to Republic after my student, he dared me to to apply. Uh, I did a lot. I did some research. Um, you know, now it's the two thousands. There's such a thing as internet. I did do some Googling (laughs) for airline, airline pilots with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And I came up with pretty much nil except for one. I came up with, uh, I don't know if you remember in the 90s that there was a Brasilia crash out in Georgia where um, a uh, prop sheared off the engine and was dangling at an angle. No. And it was Atlantic Southeast flight. And the uh, the airplane crashed and burned because the prop sheared, and it sheared in such a way that they couldn't feather it, and it was half dangling on the wing. It gave them just a horrendous drag that they couldn't keep the airplane in the air anymore. Yeah. Um, the captain died, and the first officer he got burned really bad, and he crawled out of the wreckage. And several passengers died, um, and that was with ASA, and he's still flying with them today, and he's a captain now. But when I when I came up with him, when I found his name and found pictures of him, his head and face weren't really that burned as bad as mine was, but his hand, his hand was almost identical to what my hand looks like today. Oh wow! And when I when I saw that, and it's like, holy crap, if he can do it, then I sure as hell can do it. Definitely. And, and so that was kind of one of the main reasons why. And also, when I was working the desk job there at Duncan Aviation, I, I lived vicariously through the stories of my friends that were flying for airlines. Mm-hmm. But then also, I, I lived vicariously through reading the internet forms you know i was i was a lurker on airline pilot central i was reading the forms there hearing people talk about trips and the airplanes they fly so i threw it out there i made a post out there casually gouging them saying hey um uh, any of you guys are a fly with anyone with a disability um i would like to hear from you if you know of any pilots with a disability that made it in the 121 world and you know I should have I should have known what I was asking for. Because <laughs> yeah. uh um I got met with a lot of hate, a lot of guys like, Oh, you have no business flying an airplane. How how can you you won't be able to even hit the pod disconnect button in an emergency. And I was like, Well, I do have another hand. It doesn't say you have to use <laughs> I mean, but basically I was basically laughed out the door. Yeah. Um but after I pa- after I passed my check right, I went back to that thread and reposted saying, Hey guys, I'm uh I actually made it and it was that internet thread when i when i reposted again when i resurrected the thread said hey guys you guys are laughing but i i actually did make it through training um someone anonymously emailed that thread to the editors at aopa saying hey we need to find out if this story is uh legit or not and aopa contacted me and uh they said hey if you're ever in uh, dc we want to we want to meet you, and I was like, "Well, hey, I have a layover in DC here next week." Yeah, let's so do they it. drove out to the hotel, they 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 drove out to the hotel Rostana and met me and verified the story that I had told on that internet forum. Wow! And, and they said, "We'll let you know." And several months later, they called me back. Yeah, we're going to do a story on you. And they ran a several page story on me, in AOPA pilot, in October two thousand eight. That's incredible. Well, so that was how. That was how AOPA got involved. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. I I really appreciate you coming on and sharing that because I know it's got to bring up a lot of memories. I know it's not maybe the the best thing that you like to think about sometimes because it was obviously a very tragic moment. But I'm very thankful for you coming on and sharing that because I know there are people with some disabilities and you can kind of be seen as that they can do it. If someone else can do it, then why can't they do it? So I'm very encouraged with everyone that helped you with Republic giving you a chance to go fly and just to see if you can do it and prove that you could do it. And you did. And you proved that you could do it and you're still doing it today. So it's very encouraging for anyone and everyone that wants to be a pilot to hear your story and see that it's possible to be done.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not that I don't even mind talking about it. I, I actually enjoy talking about it because it gets it gets the elephant out of the room. You know, people see all the burns. Clearly, I've been through some tragic event. And people are polite. They don't want to ask about it, you know, but I know that they're always thinking about it, you know? Yeah. So I very openly bring it up. It's like, hey, I was burning a plane crash. Hey, you want to talk about the latest episode of Game of Thrones, you know? <laughs> Just get it <laughs> out, you know? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't mind talking about it at all because it, it's very much who I am. Definitely. Um, people always ask me, a oh, bet you wish you could take that day back, don't you? And it's like, yes and no. Because uh, if I could take that one day back, my life would be totally different today. I wouldn't have my kids today. You know, that, that one day has totally defined the direction my life has taken. I, I definitely don't, I don't get impatient for things. You know, like we were talking about earlier about commuting. I, uh, I very much, uh, become more patient now in life. I try not to get over, uh, overworked up over stuff. Patience is a virtue and I've learned very much that um, life is too short to spend time getting worked up over things you can't control. Yep, definitely. And, and that's and that's one of the things that I I can't take back. So I don't I don't even think about it anymore. I don't think about what my life could have turned out to be because I very much am happy with the way my life is now.
1: Good. Well, I'm glad that it, you are happy with everything how it is now. And like I said before, I'm just very encouraged by your story, and I'm glad to see that you are doing what you truly love to do. Last thing I have for you is the rapid fire section. It's going to be a bunch of quick questions, aviation related. And you just say the first thing that comes to your mind.
0: You ready? All right. Sounds good.
1: What's your favorite airplane?
0: I love the Cirrus SR-22. Fun airplane to fly. Favorite airport you've ever flown to?
1: Uh, It's going to be LaGuardia. You
0: You can't beat the views flying into New York
1: City. As Drizzle says, only the weak people hate LaGuardia. That's right. Yeah. What's, uh, do you prefer long trips or short trips? You know,
0: uh, it's a mix. You know, I, there, there are days where I, I long for the shorter trips where I'm on such long legs, but there's times where the short trips wear you out quicker than the longer legs. It's, uh, it's kind of half and half. I do appreciate the longer flights though. I think I do lean more towards the long flights.
1: Yeah, I would agree. Would you rather fly over cities, mountains, the country, or the, a beach? Oh, beach, definitely. I've seen too
0: many uh, trees and mountains. I, I want to see some beaches.
1: All right, here's one. If you weren't a pilot, what would you want to be? Uh, if I wasn't a pilot, I would definitely want
0: to do something aviation-related, though. Um, definitely, uh, I took a tour recently of the Kennedy Space Center, and just walking there, it's like, gosh, I would love just to be a janitor here. To be the guy <laughs> sweeping the floor in some of these buildings, just to be in the presence of yeah. so much really technology i would that's where i would want to be i don't want to be working somewhere at nasa that's awesome. either just to be a flying ball,
1: right exactly that's where i'd want to be yep. all right here's one do you like piper
0: or cessna better that's a good question um because cessna's they handle great and they offer great views down but piper for some reason i just love the sturdy feel of a piper though when i when you make a landing in that so that's i'm half and half they're both great airplanes to fly
1: i would agree what's the hardest checkride you've ever had
0: oh man i would say probably the hardest checkride i had was um my first uh pc in the right seat of the 170 that was probably my hardest checkride just because i felt you know this is my chance to prove that i can fly this airplane um the check air at the time he had put me at ease right from the get go, saying, "Hey, your instructor signed you off for this check ride, which, in in my eyes, means you've passed. But now you've got to prove it to me." Yeah. Um, but still, I felt nervous. I felt like, you know what, this is my defining moment. This is what I have to do to prove to everybody that I can manipulate the controls of this airplane just fine. And so that I felt, I felt very much under the microscope, and I wanted to be under the microscope. I wanted to know. I didn't want people to give me a pass because they felt sorry for me. They wanted to see me to go. I wanted them to be tough as nails on me. That way I know I would be safe on the line. I, had, I wanted to have that confidence that I was as safe as anybody else. And That's so it, 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 I, I felt the pressure, and I, and I excelled at it.
1: Good. I'm glad you did. That's awesome.
0: What's your favorite airport food? Oh,
1: favorite airport food? Five guys. Five guys. Favorite airline livery?
0: oh man that's a good one yeah you know um my favorite one i love the the retro american that 7-3 that's painted up in the 1940s and thirties paint scheme that's yeah. my
1: favorite that one's a pretty cool one all right and the last one i have for you is what's your favorite overnight city
0: oh man uh dca is probably my favorite overnight city just because uh you know, if you want to go do anything aviation geek related, you know, the Smithsonian's right there. Um, so that's that would probably be one of my favorite ones to go to. Sweet.
1: And then this is the last thing I'll do is um, I have just started a Patreon account. And part of the Patreon rewards is you get to ask a question. So I chose one person to ask a question. And you kind of answered it already. But I'm going to go ahead and answer I'm going to go ahead and ask it for him Anyone? Anyway. This one comes from Jake. And it is, he's curious about the appeal process with the FAA after your accident. And how and if it was addressed in the regional interview, what all you told the regional when you went to go interview?
0: Well, um, one of the things that I did, um, you know, when when I went through the whole process to get my medical back um, is, you know, they they set forth, you know, all the standards they wanted me to go through. Um, And then when I did my soda ride, they wanted to basically see me physically do things with my right hand. Uh, They wanted to see me pull circuit breakers with my right hand. They wanted to see me manipulate the radio, the throttles, everything that was about my disabled hand. They wanted to see me physically do. And then when I went to interview at Republic, ironically, it was weird. I was very much nervous about my medical. They hardly ever brought it up. They figured that the fact that I was there interviewing and I had a first-class medical in my pocket, there was no question about it, that they – I was nervous from day one. I was in indoc constantly asking the Czech airman, "Hey, are you guys nervous about my hand?" They're like, "You got first class medical, right?" I was like, "Well, yeah. I wouldn't be here if I didn't." And they're like, "Well, then we're good. We don't That's care." Awesome. <laughs> that That's was cool. that was their attitude. I was so nervous about that, and uh, they put me at ease. They said, "Hey, you're gonna get in the sim. You're gonna find out if you can do it or not. And if if and if you can't, well then." we'll figure something else out for, for you to do and we'll worry about that later but right now you're here to fly we're just going to take it on we're just going to take your word for it that you can fly it you just got to show us
1: that's awesome well cool well, logan those are all the questions i have for you thank you again for coming on the podcast and sharing your story i think it is beneficial for anyone and everyone in aviation to listen to this and i really think it has helped help people kind of understand that maybe their problem really isn't as bad as they think and that it that they're they shouldn't be down in their situation and always be positive. And like we said, whether you're you're dealing with commuting, whether you're dealing with gate agents, whether you're just dealing with this this career in general, just always be positive and always just know that you're doing what you love to do. So, thank you for coming on the podcast. I truly appreciate it. Oh, yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me again, Justin. It's been great. No problem, Logan. Have a great day. Day yeah, too, man. And that is a wrap of episode number 24 featuring Logan Flood. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. We're trying to get to 100 reviews by the end of the year, so help us get that. We're also trying to get 10,000 followers on Instagram and 30 supporters on Patreon. If you are a supporter on Patreon or if you want to become a supporter on Patreon, there is a Patreon-only giveaway where I'm giving away a free subscription to Floor Flight a subscription to to FlightAware, and I'm also giving away some FlightAware swag. So go ahead and support us on that. It helps us create this amazing podcast and even helps us create even more stuff that we have planned for the future. Aviation have a great day and happy flying.